you, you talk to most people, oh, I love nature. I love the outdoors. Well, you know, now we get to have the opportunity of seeing what that looks like when we put our money and our actions where our mouth is. And so I think, you know, in the past, we've had this model of conservation, which is sort of this fortress conservation model where we've, yeah, exactly. we've got parks, we've got, you know, w- you know, wilderness areas, and those are really important and they serve a really valuable, you know, purpose for people and wildlife alike. In Montana, we've got some of the most beautiful wilderness areas, you know, I'm sure I'm biased on the planet, but I think, you know, when you're really talking about how are we figuring out how to, to you know, deal with these bear issues, well, really we're talking about how are we dealing with human issues on, on the planet. Welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 211, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. You're going to be hearing from Rob Green today. He is a conservation journalist and writer out of Montana, and he wrote a brilliant piece about the incredibly polar and controversial topic of grizzly bears in North America that you can find in the latest volume of Modern Huntsman, volume 9, his story is called The Hand That Feeds. If you want to read that, head over to modernhuntsman.com and subscribe to the book. And you can get volume nine right now in the store. Um, in the podcast, I said that it was just shipping, but we actually recorded that podcast a couple of weeks ago. So it will ship straight out the door as soon as you order it. For the first time in a while, I'm actually ahead with my recordings on the podcast and not just sort of running week to week almost. I probably have a back catalogue of about six incredible episodes ready and waiting to share with you. Uh, Of course, we are out every two weeks on a Thursday, give or take, uh, depending on where I find myself on assignment. But for the next uh, probably six episodes, they're all pretty much done, ready and scheduled. So there should be an element of consistency with how those are coming out. Before we jump into the conversation with Rob, just a big thank you to every single one of you who listen to this show every two weeks and follow what I'm up to and what Modern Huntsmen are up to on the website, or you buy the book, or you're following on social media. Your support is so massively appreciated. Um, and the biggest thing that you can possibly do to support is just tell people, talk, talk about the show, talk about the book, get people to read and listen. If you would like to support this show a little bit more, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace, where there's different ways that you can help make these shows possible. And this week's top tier Patreons include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman, Vardy Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Rob, welcome to the Into the Wilderness. You're joining me all the way from the U.S. Where exactly? Uh, I'm in Missoula, Montana. I'm looking out my window right now, and I'm seeing the Bitterroot Mountains. There's still just oh. a little bit of snow out on them right now, uh, which means pretty soon it's going to be time to go do some good fly fishing. So I'm, <laughs> There's I'm, still I'm, snow. I'm, it's yeah. it's it's the end of June. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I'm I I miss Montana. I was spending quite a lot of time there uh, when the Modern Huntsman office was was based out of there. Uh, but okay. I am heading back. Actually, I'm heading oh. back in, I guess, three and a bit weeks. Are you going to be in town? In three weeks, there's a good chance. Well, I've got a couple projects that I'm working on 
in Montana, Idaho, Washington. But boy, I mean, if you're around, we should definitely try to make something happen. I feel like at this stage of the game, we owe each other at least <laughs> a couple of beers. So yeah, just just one or two. Well, <laughs> we will keep in. I didn't even think about that when I knew that I was heading up, but I will. Yeah. I'll be heading up to uh, Livingston, Bozeman area. Maybe wetting a fly line. Uh, but certainly uh, having a drink at the old saloon for sure. It would be it would be your own fault if you did not get a line in the river. You know, I mean, especially, I mean, and you know, I'm sure you've seen so much of of the flooding that's been happening in that area, and there's so many people who have been so unfortunately devastated by it. But I tell you, we've got a lot of good friends in sort of the the Paradise Valley, Tom Minor Basin, mm-hmm. Livingston area, and the community response down there has just been incredible. Uh, to watch. So yeah, it's certainly a tough hand that they've been dealt, but um, I'm sure you'll get to see a lot of that aftermath when you get down there. Mind blowing. Like, yeah. I was seeing pictures and videos out of exactly in those places you've just listed. It's all places I've spent a lot of time. And it just, I, I couldn't believe what my eyes were seeing. I mean, they said it was like a 500 year flood, didn't they? Uh, well, I've actually heard them change that I heard 500-year flood, and now the most recent one I've heard is 1,000-year flood. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of weird, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, you've got so much devastation, and there's so many, you know, families and lives that have really been upended by this, um, you know, and they've had to close a good chunk of, of the park down there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, what an opportunity for so much wildlife and ecosystems just to have a moment to take a breath, not to have that pressure from from people um, and kind of just recalibrate a little bit. So, you know, it's kind of one of those weird double-edged sword things, but, you know, you certainly don't want to diminish just how challenging it's been for a lot of folks down that way. It'll be interesting to speak. Well, I guess it's going to take a while to understand exactly what damage has been done. I'm not talking about physical damage to to structures and, and things that humans care about, which I totally understand is it's been utterly devastating i know people that have been i'm assuming that they've connected themselves back with the rest of the world now but have been were cut off for a long period of time so i'm not quite sure how they were getting food in maybe like throwing it back across the river or something because the bridges were uh the bridges have been washed away but um i think that was up in tom minor basin is what i'm thinking of and um but it'll be interesting to see what damage has been done to the rivers in particular i know that We've had a lot of very serious flooding, you know, in the last couple of years more than in the previous hundred years. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be incredible how it reshapes and recrafts a river, sometimes for the better. But mm-hmm. I've also seen instances where large tracks of the river, which had historically, you know, as far back as we have records, been incredible spawning reds for salmon coming up that had just been scoured out and didn't exist in the same form as they had done. So now, and, and maybe it's the case that those spawning reds are just going to be in different places in the river and they, they just won't spawn where they had done yeah. for the previous 100, 200, 300 years. Uh, but I, I think some of, the, some of the flooding in the last uh, couple of years has definitely, yeah, it's definitely changed how those systems work. And certainly... We had some, and I can't remember which storm this was, but it just came at, at completely the worst time for salmon hatching off. And because that cycle is about you know, five to six years, depending on how long uh, they spend at sea, five years later, you you could you can normally plot those events 
because you can see where all those reds, all the eggs were sitting there just waiting to hatch out. They all got all those, or not all of them, but a, a, a good proportion of those reds got washed out and into the ocean, which means that uh, the percentage survival from that year's spawning was incredibly low. And then five years later, you see that dip in the return of the salmon sure. coming. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, and I think, thankfully, so many of those those species are so resilient if we allow them to be resilient. You know, if we stop pumping stuff, you know, into the river and, and you know, present a lot of human-caused challenges to them. And, yeah, I mean, it might be a once-in-a-thousand-year flood, but, you know, healthy rivers are supposed to be able to change course and braid and do all these different things. So time will tell, you know, how long it takes um, – the species and the communities to, to bounce back. But, you know, I wish everybody the best, whether you've got a, a pectoral fin or not. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I was actually, I was on a river, um, I guess it was yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. It was one of these rare occasions when I was actually at home. And so I, I sit on the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust, which is a, it's, it's a trust that is uh, basically the, the watershed in the area that I, uh, that I work in. And I've been on there since I was ooh, probably about 20 so or 21, so 15 years. And um, I, the basic remit of that is the conservation of the watershed and the species within it. Um, there does tend to be a weighted focus on salmon because for, for a number of reasons, partly because that's where a lot of money is generated and how we can generate money for the area and for the river systems, but also because they are the species that is most, most imperiled with their decline. But about uh, 10 years ago, it was a section of river uh, that we helped, where we raised the funds and organized the engineering project to re-meander it. So it had been canalized back in sort of 1880. And it was this long, you know, it was about uh, 800 meters, if I remember rightly, straight channel. Not particularly good for anything, really. Some salmon did go and spawn in it, but that was that was the only use for that section of river. And it, it really c- contributed to this um, historical drainage of the land that happened in the previous 200 years, which took water from the landscape and shoved it downstream as quickly as possible, which exacerbated a lot of flooding events. Uh But this conversation that we were having, I was having a look at it uh, with some of the the scientists who were involved in it 10 years later, and how incredibly fast, really, that ecosystem has recovered now that the river was allowed to take its historic meandering route and how the, the riverbed has changed, but how also it's uh, in a small way going to, con- or is already contributing to reducing downstream flooding pressures. And one of the conversations that we were having about flooding was that it's crazy that humans everywhere around the world have continued to build houses on floodplains. When you know, a healthy river flood. system oh, needs yeah. to flood, yeah, like that's that's how those landscapes are shaped and formed, and for them to function the way that nature intended, they will flood to their extremities periodically. But we build houses and infrastructures on them all of the time. Even now, there, I guarantee you, there'll be multiple places around the UK right now where new houses are being built on floodplains that probably flooded, you know, in the last ten years. Right. Yeah, it's it's the things that we that we do to a landscape. I tell you, it's, it's just bizarre. You know, it's like the writings on the wall. We've seen it happen 
you know, again and again and again. And, and I think that's so much of what I try to, you know, focus on with a lot of my work is understanding how to live responsibly within that landscape instead of just trying to wrestle it around all the time. Because yep. as we see time and time again, you know, eventually when you try to wrestle around the landscape, it's going to beat you, you know. Um, it's incredibly arrogant to think we can, uh, we can outwit nature. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I wasn't expecting to have a 10-minute tangent on flooding, but, but uh, that is the joy of these long-form <laughs> conversational podcasts. But you, Rob, reached out, remind me, I, 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 more than a year ago for the first time, or was it even further back than that? Well, because you have a story in this volume of Modern Huntsman, the one that is, uh, this. I think I'm going to re- uh, edit this podcast within a couple of days of us recording it. So it is sure. landing in people's mailboxes right now. And I think you just got your copy the other day. I did. Yeah, the, the layout looks beautiful. No, this is, um, geez, I mean, maybe it was appropriate to be talking about flooding and fish in the first place. You know, I remember, uh, what was it? It was in the middle of the pandemic. I had the opportunity to, to do a story uh, with Modern Huntsman on on fly fishing in Montana. Um, I, it was just some web content. But yeah, having the chance to do this project, The Hand That Feeds, um, and see it in Volume 9 is just, it's so cool to to see it. And it's so wonderful to see, you know, Modern Huntsman talking about these issues seriously. And it's just so wonderful to be, you know, next to so many other uh, photographers and, and writers and, and artists um, involved with this volume. So it's, I think it's beautiful. So tell me about how that story came to pass. Not so much how, how it came to end up in Modern Huntsman. We'll talk about that. But you, that was a story that you were already working on when, when you came to us. I mean, I think it was, apart from the written aspect of it, which you know, we worked on, uh, you'd already done, done the story and, and found the story and put it together yourself before you came to us with it. Yeah. So I guess to, to even get to Bear's, Boy, I'm glad we got long form right now, Byron, because this is a little bit, this is a COVID <laughs> I'm all story. good with that. This is a COVID story for you. Um, so you know, I I graduated from the the master's program in environmental studies uh, here at the University of Montana with a focus in natural resource conflict resolution. Wow, I and, love that. Sorry to interrupt yeah, you already. After oh, just saying one is, second, tell yeah. me just take a, a small tangent because. Um, tell me a little bit about that course, because I have a lot of people ask, like, how do, how do I do this kind of thing? So I'm busy finishing my, I'm kind of halfway through my master's at, um, at Edinburgh university oh, where congrats. we just studying, it's probably a similar suite of topics that you, that sure. you've looked at, but what is that course like? And did you enjoy it? Yeah. I mean, you know, so the environmental studies master's program, there's a lot of different ways that a person can approach it. Um, in, in Missoula here, you know, you've got food systems, you've got, a lot of environmental justice issues. You've got, you know, a whole creative writing track um, policy. I don't know if I said that or not, uh, but you know, my approach to it was was coming from a place of okay. There's a lot of things I don't understand about conservation, and so I really want to get a better um, grasp on the fundamentals of ecology, on the politics of how conservation works, on understanding, you know, who the stakeholders are. Um, which is why I kind of went that way instead of leaning more into, you know, a lot of the, the wonderful journalism uh, programs here at the University of Montana, even yeah, though great ones. background, you know, and, and undergraduate was in journalism. So, you know, that's kind of the reason that I went that track. And then as soon as I started that program, you know, I got turned on to this whole separate 
um, program and certificate that kind of that kind of feathers into the environmental studies track, which is natural resource conflict resolution. And so you've got a, a bunch of really wonderful um, both students and faculty in that program who have been in this area for a long time, who have a lot of experience working with a lot of you know different entities, whether that's local governments, whether that's state governments, whether that's federal government, whether that's you know tribal government, whether it's biologists, you know who, whoever it might be. And so you really get the opportunity to approach conservation tactfully, which is hard to do a lot of the time because you've got a lot of um, got a lot of personalities in play. You've got a lot of you know positions going on, and so you're trying to really get past you know what are the positions that people have and what are the real interests behind those positions. And so you kind of get into this whole mindset of trying to be a facilitator, oftentimes a mediator to to issues that are happening across the West. And so when you've got a camera in your hand and you're, you're trying to talk about issues that can be quite touchy, um, being able to go in um, sensitively and being able to go in tactfully and being able to do a good job of just listening uh, is a skill that doesn't always necessarily come naturally to me. And I think that that was a great opportunity to practice that. And I really think that's why I was able to get the sort of access and build the sort of relationships that have only become more important to me um, and meaningful to me as I continue to work on issues with human predator conflict. It's it's a really tricky balance, and I, I find I found this uh, I found this particularly quite recently on a project which I will discuss more um, probably in seven or eight months' time. Um, but it, a very controversial subject, and with communities. I'm trying to work out how much to say here and keep yeah, under wraps what I'm doing, but working with, yeah. what's, that, what's that, Rob? You heard it here first, folks. You're getting the inside <laughs> on Byron's project. With uh, working with communities that are, or groups of people that have come under a lot of pressure in the past for what they're doing. And for you understandably, why would they open the door when they're only ever criticized for what they're doing? And it's quite difficult to go into certain topics with a completely open mind. And I've said this recently to a couple of people when I, I was actually, it was on the back of a doc, well, in inverted commas, a documentary that I was watching and sort of trying to not pick apart in a constructive and critical way, um, is be aware of your biases and acknowledge your biases going into something. Because then if you, can, if you can lay that on the table and be upfront about where you're coming from, but also try and explain to the people that you're there to tell a story and you're truth-seeking and you're, you only want to portray what is happening, you're, you're doing your best to go into it without an agenda, but you're aware of the background that you are tackling the subject with. I found that quite disarming for for the people and it's amazing how it can take time and the more time you spend with a group of people or or an individual the, the more you really find out who that person is and and the more comfortable they are with you in terms of how they interact but it, it is a skill set for sure it, it's and it's a really important skill set and it's it's something that definitely can't be rushed i've learned that in the last couple of years working on some kind of extended documentary projects where you can't, and I hate parachute journalism, you can't just dip in for a couple of days and dip out 
you get this kind of this kind of slither of a window into the lives of those people that might not entirely be accurate or or accurate at all because you're getting the slice of their lives but more than that you can't really expect to see who those people are when you're just in and out and i'm sure you found that too because of the kind of subjects that you like to delve into i think we're we're quite like-minded i think in terms of in terms of the topics that we want to tackle well and that's the challenge right is because you know i really think you're 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 touching on something important and this is the thing that I think so many people who are involved in conservation work, you know, whether that's as a biologist or a policymaker or as a as a photographer or storyteller or what have you, is that the the way that we consume um, media and s- stories has become so challenging. And this is nothing new or you know mind blowing, but but because we're so used to getting things so quickly and in such immediate, you know, tweets or sound bites or, you know, images or w- whatever it is that we're practicing not being fully attentive to what's going on. And I think the more we can try to make some sort of shift to get people to be better in tune or to take more time or be more patient with you know, a landscape or an issue or whatever it is that that they're getting riled up about, I think that's when you're going to start to see, um, you know, storytelling act as a solvent. And I think that there are, you know, publications out there, certainly Modern Huntsman is one of them, that allows space for those longer, you know, form stories where you kind of get a deeper understanding of what's going on and why it's so tricky and why it's, you know, so, so controversial for so many people. But, you know, that's something that we're always working on. Some people say, well, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to fix it. I'm not the person to fix it. But I think we should try to to encourage people to come and to engage with those conversations in a much longer time frame. You're not going to figure out an issue in a story. You're not going to figure out an issue oftentimes in one piece of legislation that, that comes across. It's just it's a process. And I think that that goes again, that in itself goes sort of um to fighting that that media consumption that we're used to when it's got to be really quick. It's got to be a tweet. It's got to be a post. It's got to be a soundbite. I think it's just good when you can take time with a place, with with people, with an issue. Um, I think we need some more of that right now, you know, and, and that's what I'm trying to do with the work that, that I'm involved with, too. And I think, you know, to kind of go with the parachute journalism thing that you were talking about, that is one of the things that I have been grateful for with regards to the pandemic is, you know, really before, uh, you know, getting involved with this work and even before coming to Montana, I was darting all over the place. You know, I really kind of sort of got my feet into the proverbial conservation pool, so to speak, by spending a lot of time down in Central and South America, um, working as a guide down in, in some, some areas down there, Oh, amazing! which was, you know, exciting and, you know, whatever you, get to go do that stuff. And, and what, what kind of guiding Rob? So we spent time with uh, sort of a bunch of kind of like gap year student groups. And so we would take them into places. We'd work with indigenous communities in places like, you know, Guatemala, um, Costa Rica, Ecuador, and the Galapagos. And so, you know, we do sort of these extended backpacking trips. You would work with indigenous communities and, you know, other guides and try to turn some of these young people on to these issues um, and challenges. And, you know, really, I got to the point over the course of doing that for about five years um, 
where you go back to the same places and you kind of stop, you stop seeing any progress, you know, and it's, it's through no fault of the indigenous communities or the people that we're working with, but you just see how difficult conservation is and how a lot of places refuse to fund it, to take it seriously. You see a lot of corruption. Um, and so, you know, pretty disheartening. It can be pretty disheartening. And I think what I, you know, kind of got to a point was realizing where I was just kind of running my head into a wall and just walking people around these areas wasn't really um, doing as much to be a part of a solution as I wanted to be. Okay. And so, you know, it was kind of after I had that realization, I said, okay, you know, I spent all this time getting this journalism career that I haven't been using because I've been working all over Central and South America. Um, Let's do something with it. And so that's when, you know, my wife and I made the choice to move to Montana and dig in a lot deeper to these issues um, which has led me here. And originally I had had planned to go back down to Guatemala and continue some work uh, down there. But, you know, the pandemic had other plans. Uh, and so in talking with some some great advisors and mentors, they said, look, you've got you've got plenty of issues in your own backyard here, guy. Um, <laughs> and so that's where I started to to get in touch with some people who have changed my life and have been so formative in the way that I approach uh, conservation and conservation journalism. Um, and so, you know, I'm really, I'm grateful for those opportunities and those people who've, who've kind of helped push this, this work along. So what was, what was the, the first story that you tackled at home? Where did, where did the hand that feeds, which is the the story that's in volume nine fit in that timeline? Sure. So the, the hand that feeds, you know, and the, the work that I've done with, human grizzly conflict in Western Montana, you know, just kind of came from talking again with, with mentors and, and faculty advisors that I had, uh, you know, who said, Hey, I think you should talk to, to, to these people. And so I really got the opportunity to sit down, um, with Jamie Jonkel is probably the most legendary bear management specialist, arguably in the lower 48. Uh, and he lives here in Missoula and has been instrumental in in conflict management uh, in Montana and certainly far beyond. And so he's with Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. And I got involved with him. I got involved with a conservation group, uh, group called the Blackfoot Challenge, uh, which focuses on a lot of the issues in the Blackfoot watershed. Um, and so with those two issues, you know, I, I give them a lot of credit or those two organizations, excuse me. I give them a lot of credit because they took me in having no experience with me, having no background with me. And they said, okay, you know, here's the issues that we're having. There's these communities kind of along the Blackfoot um, that are dealing with a lot of bear conflict. And, you know, we, we're trying to address that. And so that's how I kind of got my foot in the door, just going really slowly with them, you know, talking with them, doing ride-alongs with them, which they were gracious enough to allow me to do. Um, and so you kind of build those relationships. You spend more and more time in communities again, just, just going slow. You get to know people in communities because, you know, you go to local bar, restaurant, you get to know folks and eventually that's the way to do it, isn't it? You go drink at the local bar. Yeah. local bar, And I I don't know what it is, Byron, but (laughs) everybody with a bear story wants to tell you their bear story. (laughs) They only want to tell it to you faster if they've had, you know, a a couple of of drinks in them. Right. Yeah. uh, but again, in, in some of the communities I've worked with, like, like the, uh, or the story in modern huntsman here, um, a community called Sealy Lake, you know, I had the chance to meet some wonderful community members 
who were so open and willing to to help engage with this and let me put cam- you know camera traps up um, you, you know as we were doing monitoring and such so it uh, it really turned into kind of a, a cool community project which it's what we're shooting for right we're not just yeah. talking about an issue we're talking about all the things that surround that issue the communities that surround the issue the socioeconomics that are you know that complicate or or certain issues the politics that are involved with that um, local attitudes. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. And so, you know, this, this story is really the culmination of, you know, more than two years of, of not just, you know, photography or writing, but relationship building, um, projects and, and things like that. So I, uh, I love that. I love it. And, and, you know, it truly feels like the work is just getting started and, yeah. you know, Montana fish, wildlife and parks and, and Jamie Jonkel and, you know, his sort of protege, a guy named Eli Hampson, you know, they're still out there working hard right now. Um, Blackfoot Challenge is doing some incredible work out there as well. And so I, I certainly feel um, just committed to keep that that work going because there's a lot still that needs to be done with regards to human predator conflict in the West. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, well, I'm hoping that we're going to cover wolves as... Hmm. I mean, not that we can cover the whole thing in a volume, but uh, we're going to start to cover wolves in the next volume as a the human predator conflict issue, which is yeah. very hot button. But going back to something you just said about it's about community, it's about community in every respect. Because I think when we when when most people are having conversations about you know, we need to engage with the local community, we need to engage with local communities from every species because we are one of the species. In the local communities, because I, I, in everything that I write and every conversation that I have, uh, and everything that we kind of strive for at Modern Huntsman is to make people, or not make people, but help people come to the realization that we are nature. And the more that we see ourselves as part of that system rather than a part of that system, which is what has happened in this very disconnected landscape and an increasingly urbanized center mass of population, the more we're going to be able to find the common grounds and also um, appreciate how we're impacting the landscape around us, Mm -hmm. uh, community as a whole. Which yeah. is, I think, viewing it in that way is really exciting. And the, the more that I sort of strive to live in that manner, the more I enjoy life in, in many respects without trying to sound too dramatic about no, it. No, I, I hear you. And, you know, it's, it's so easy to try to look at things under a microscope and try to pick apart what's wrong with something or, you know, why is this still an issue? Um, but these communities, they get it. Right. I'm talking about places like Sealy Lake or Condon, you know, or Ovando, Montana. I, look like these folks have got grizzly bears in their yard sometimes every single day of the summer months. They totally get what's going on up there. And they are the ones who are closest to either conflict or potential conflict. Yep. Now, I think the issue comes and the tension comes when you've got a perspective, somebody else has a perspective and maybe that person's perspective is farther removed from yours and they feel really passionate about it, whatever it might be. Um, but I don't think, again, you're going to figure out any real path forward unless you 
you can engage with those people and understand where that tension is at. I mean, just a little bit ago, Byron, you and I were talking about fishing. A lot of the times I think about it the same way, right? If you hook that fish, if you pull too hard, you snap the line and you lost the fish that you wanted in the first place, right? But if if you can just keep enough tension to keep them with you, you know, a lot of the time you're going to, you know, bring the fish in and, and you know, you're going to have a great time with it. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, opponents of mine or someone that I'm trying to bring into the net. All I'm trying to say is that that tension, I think, can be good when it's used properly. Um, and when you're, you're doing it with the effort to really engage with something in a meaningful way. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if, if fishing is necessarily the, the right analogy there, if you want to include that in the podcast. But <laughs> I mean, no, I know, what you're, I know what you're saying. It, it's, right? if, if you're too abrasive yeah. and you take a stance which won't budge from the, the polar position of people on the, the far side, like the far opposite opinion, mm-hmm. then there's no opportunity for conversation yeah. at all. Uh, you know, there has to be a bit of, okay, I'm going to take a couple of steps towards you because I want to understand how your mind works. And that's how I approach a lot of these things. I want, whatever the opinion is that somebody has, I want to understand why they have that opinion because maybe I'm wrong. And I had this, I had this conversation just a couple of weeks ago when I, I was trying to explain my kind of um, process for storytelling. And I said, I go into, you know, whatever the, the subject matter is and whatever the, the group of people or the community is. And I kind of want to be wrong because obviously I, I will have formed opinions on whatever the topic is based on stuff I've read or just life, just, just existing on, on the planet. You form opinions of things, even if you're not particularly well informed about it. So, but I, I'm... I, I want to investigate. In, in, in many respects, I'm an investigative journalist when I'm tackling those, those topics. And sure. you kind of have to be. Yeah. Go in with an open mind and be prepared to be wrong. And it's kind of awesome to be wrong, to, see, to find those, those aha moments, those, those realizations that, oh my goodness, is, is that what is actually happening here? I have to tell the world. And that is a beautiful thing to me. Is that, and I was trying to explain that I don't mind being wrong. I kind of want to be wrong, mm-hmm. but show me, you know, let me into your world and, and show me. Yeah. I mean, I really think that, you know, as, as a journalist or storyteller or whatever you might be, you know, if you go in to a project and at the end of that project, you had fought, if you find exactly what you hoped to have found, my sense would be that you have done something wrong or you've missed it. Um, yeah. You know, I think that that's so important. And again, with an issue like this, it's just sprawling, right? Because, you know, we've got grizzly bears that are listed as a threatened species uh, under the Endangered Species Act. And there's right now a lot of uh, pressure and attempts to delist them, you know, from from the act. And so there's a lot of tension swirling around. What are we going to do with this? What does that mean? What is that going to look like? You know, and you're looking at grizzly bear populations and, you know, really the the ecosystem that I focused on, which is called the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, which is, you know, a, a huge swath of kind of Northwest uh, Montana. Um, it's got Glacier National Park in it, a bunch of communities, you know, it, it's a huge area. But again, kind of going back to what we talked about within a landscape, someone says, should we delist them? Maybe. But I think, again, what are we doing as human beings to facilitate um, a better model of coexistence 
between us and bears, but also, you know, among us and everything else that surrounds us too. Because looking into this issue, you know, yes, you've got a lot of bears on this area. And sometimes these bears are coming right through the middle of communities, truly just walking down main streets of, of, of communities. And, you know, if your first response is to, well, there's too many bears, we just, we just need to hunt them, we just got to shoot them. That doesn't really force you to do much um, looking inside, right? Doesn't force much introspection, which I think should be a really important part of being a good ethical um, forget conservationists. Let's just call it a person living on a landscape, which is all of us, right? And so with this example, it really comes down to this issue of attractants. That's the word you hear thrown around again and again and again, attractants. And it's, you know, yes, we, of course, we think about trash. Everyone thinks about that. But it's bird feeders. It's orchard trees. It's clover that just happens to grow, you know, in, in your yard. It's really anything that a bear a grizzly decides is edible, which is just a ton. There's so much that they eat. I've seen an entire, Byron, a whole plastic bottle, not even shards of a plastic bottle, a whole plastic bottle that got pooped out the end of a, of a grizzly bear just sitting there in the scat. It's like, what? I mean, the things that they choose to eat just blows my mind. But, you know, what are we doing to draw those bears into conflict? And how can we address that more meaningfully? And even that is a, is a as a tough sell because you have a lot of places in some of these rural communities that, that either don't have great access to, you know, great attractant storage. Um, or sometimes there's, there's just a lot of poverty and maybe they can't afford to have, you know, a, a bear resistant container versus just a regular trash can, or they can't afford that, that trash enclosure that it would take to, to put up. So, you know, it's, it's a tricky deal where it's not just people against bears. It's also people against, you know, a socioeconomic problem uh, at the same time. But that again is where you see a lot of problem solving going on and a lot of community building because you have these wonderful groups, you know, like Montana fish, wildlife and parks or Blackfoot challenge or Swan Valley connections in that area or vital ground. There's a ton of groups that are involved in cost sharing programs to help implement better strategies in these places and help to offset costs for, you know, ranchers or communities or, you know, businesses, individuals, whatever it might be. So to see that sort of community effort that is going into that is also really reassuring because I think a lot of the time in journalism, especially in conservation journalism, we are so used to seeing something that's bleak, right? Yeah, this is very fire. true. <laughs> Let's grounding. get some positive stories. Yeah, out there. All the animals are dying. And that's true. I mean, there's a there's a lot of stuff that's not going, you know, probably as it should be. But, you know, I think you'd be remiss if you're not including how many people and stakeholders, community members, members, tribal members are doing so much to cultivate uh, a sense of community and uh, a broader sense of coexistence as we're having so many people move to a place like Montana at the same time oh, yeah. we're watching these grizzly populations, you know, begin to really rebound and recover. Mm. Uh, and so again, I mean, community is it. It's where it's at. I think that's how we're going to solve a lot of this stuff, but you just have to get people willing to talk and you got to do that by going slow. I think at this point we might, let's take a couple of steps back because sure. this is, um, like this, what you've just talked about in the last 10 minutes is, is so much of what's in your story. And I want to dive into this a little bit more. But I think it would be useful 
probably for people in um, North America, but also the rest of the world, to understand some of the history of grizzly bears and why, how have we got to this point? Because you don't have to turn the clock back that far. Um, and th there's a reason that they're listed on the Endangered Species Act. It's because there was barely any of them left. There's still not that many, but in areas, there's a lot. You know, it's it's all relative. There are but there are vast tracts of of the U.S. that have no bears, no bears in them at all. I mean, and something else that I think is worth tackling because I actually had to make sure that I was correct when I was uh, you know working on this story with you, and we put um this a uh, double page map spread just before your story to try and shape in people's minds where are these places that you're talking about, and where are they situated in the U.S. and and what do those populations and numbers actually look like when we say that the population has rebounded or there's a lot of bears in an area? Was this difference between, um, a difference in inverted commas, <laughs> between a grizzly and brown bears as well? So maybe you can yeah. paint a little bit of a historic picture for people and sure. give a bit of background for people who, which will be the vast majority, I would imagine, of this podcast who have never seen a bear. I saw my first grizzly only 18 months ago. Isn't that in Tom, Minor, in Tom Minor Basin? It was oh, it was awesome. They're so cool, and you know, depending on who you talk to, they're not cool. But you know, it's, it's that. It's, <laughs> no, yeah. they're very freaking cool. <laughs> there's freaking no, cool. there's no debate. I I remember my birthday. I remember my wife's birthday. I remember my anniversary. But I also remember the very first day I I touched a living, breathing grizzly bear, and it was insane. You know, that's was just that like, part of this uh, this writing project. It was part of the writing project, yeah. And of course, you know, it was it was it was amazing. I got to be part of a, um, a grizzly bear collaring and relocation, and we can talk about that a little bit later if you like. But um, just watching these wildlife biologists and and you know management specialists work was just so calming. You think when you you're being around a you know a sedated grizzly bear that you'd be really tense and worried about things you know, waking up, but I mean, these people are just pros and they move calmly, relatively slowly. They get what they need to get done. Bear goes back into the trap and then they relocate it. It, it was so awesome to be a part of them. I just have nothing but good things to say about the, the, you know, wildlife specialists that I got to work with on this project. Um, but, but to your point though, as far as, you know, brown bears in, in North America, you know, historically, they were all the way up into what is present day Alaska, Canada, and then really all the way down, even into parts of what is currently northern Mexico. I mean, their range was enormous, right? And in what is now the, the continental US, lower 48, you know, there used to be roughly 50,000 uh, grizzlies. And, you know, that was just up to recently as the 1800s. But, you know, just the same way that we saw it with other, you know, iconic species like wolves, um, bison, as people started to expand westward, I mean, they were decimated to the point that they were almost completely gone from, from the lower 48. And so you had, you know, these really robust, healthy uh, bear populations that helped make ecosystems whole that went from, you know, 50,000 down to just a few hundred, you know, over the course of just really a, a handful of years. Um, and so by the time that they were listed in the Endangered Species Act in 1975, you know, in the lower 48, you know, there was only a, a few hundred of them left. 
Uh, and so they were listed as threatened then in, in 1975. And then from that time, you had a lot of people that went to work together. You know, you've got um, really important groups like the Interagency Grizzly Bear um, Committee that, that helped to formulate these recovery zones. And so in the lower 48, we have six recovery zones right now. And the two biggest recovery zones and the ones that you really hear the most about, one, of course, is, is the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And that's a big area, beautiful area, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of grizzlies in that area. But then just to the, sort of the northwest of that, you have the Northern Continental, Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, uh, which I was talking about just a little bit ago. And so in that area, which is, you know, like 8,900 square miles, something like the size of New Jersey, uh, you've got, I think now I th- it's roughly like 1,100 uh, bears yeah. that are in that area. And so then you've got, you know, those are the two big ones. So right now there are roughly 2,000 bears out of what was 50,000 in the lower 48. So, yeah. I mean, it's still not have, a lot, really. <laughs> it's really not. I mean, it, it, it's... It's the the recoveries have been quite remarkable. I think the numbers that we had in here was yeah, I mean you eleven hundred more than a thousand anyway in the northern right. continental divide, and the, I think the the numbers in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem are up for debate a little bit. It's more than seven hundred, but I have heard some people when I was um, chatting to a couple of other people uh, and yourself for this story that say that that could be about a thousand now as well. It's true, you know, and. The recovery has been remarkable through a lot of people, a lot of outreach, you know, a lot of really important effort has gone into that. But, you know, now we're at this stage of, you know, what do we do next? Because, yes, we have an iconic species. You look at something like grizzly bears, they are so visceral, right? They're powerful. You look at them and you see this, you know, beautiful um, North American, you know, animal that's right there. But but what do we do with that now? Because their landscape is so drastically different than what it was in, let's say, you know, the year 1800. And so part of the challenge with trying to delist this animal is this whole issue of habitat connectivity and yeah. trying to, to put these, um, these ecosystems back together. And that's where, you know, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is, is kind of running into some issues when they, they're trying to take them off the endangered species list. Because if you just had these isolated populations over a long enough time, that's going to weaken the genetic diversity of that subpopulation. So eventually, you're going to need grizzly bears from the northern continental divide to get down into Yellowstone. You're going to need yeah, them to but go how? over. Exactly. And that's the how. And so... Well, the how, the how is that they would have to wander through a lot of areas that don't look anything like they used to, which right. are full of humans. Well, that's so true because, you know, if you're, you know, for people who are familiar with the area are going to know, you know, I-90 and, and many other roads. But for, for those of you that aren't, I mean, you have an enormous, you know, interstate system that cuts right through their, you know, historical habitat on top of all the other communities and potential attractants that get in the way. So you've got these animals that would normally just kind of wander through, take their time get to these other uh, subpopulations, breed, boom, you've got a nice, big, diverse genetic you know, pool, and then it just continues to build out. And so, you know, there's, there's questions as far as, you know, how do people do that? Because some of these six ecosystems don't even have bears in them, right? At least not yet. They've just been identified yeah. as, as ideal 
candidates. The Bitterroot is one of them. The Bitterroot is one of them. Yeah, and you mentioned the Bitterroot. Yeah. Where I live is Missoula, and Missoula is this, you know, big 90,000, you know, population community that separates those, those bears in the NCDE from getting to the Bitterroot. So, you know, there's a lot of people thinking about how to do this. You have some, some people say, well, what about translocation? Where you literally take bears, you sedate them, cage them, bring them over, boom, drop them off in another ecosystem and let them go. You know, you say, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. That sounds like so much effort. Um, how would you do that? But, you know, I mean, you look at like the, the wolves of Yellowstone. That's, that's how some of those, you know, animals were reintroduced. Um, but you see a lot of other really creative um, approaches too. you know, again, you've got groups like Vital Ground, which does so much work with creating habitat connectivity between different landscapes. You've got, you know, groups like Yellowstone Safe Passages that are involved in working on potentially putting in some wildlife crossings, some overpasses, underpasses for wildlife to move through and not get cut up by, by vehicles as they're trying to cross roads. So you're seeing a lot of communities and again, People who are doing this the right way, taking their time, getting good community buy-in, getting good science right, um, that are trying to address, you know, a lot of these issues. Um, but again, I just think it's how well is it going to be done? How well is it going to be received? How effective is it going to ultimately be? But humans aren't going anywhere, certainly not. And you know, bears are pretty well protected, and I don't think you're going to have grizzlies going anywhere. And I really don't think, by and large, people want grizzlies gone. I think you know, almost without exception, people want to have these beautiful, charismatic species on the landscape. So eventually you get to a point where you say, okay, how are we going to figure this thing out? And the last thing I think most engaged conservationists or or just people who live here want to do is turn them into zoo animals, you know, where it's just here in this sp- specific place where you can see them I think they like the fact that they are wild and free. And I think that that's so important um, for, for the animals. And I think it's important for the way that we appreciate them uh, yeah. as, as wild animals. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's something I brought up before, probably uh, probably for the listeners. Are gonna be, yeah, I've, I've heard that at least half a dozen times. But there's a, a couple of reports out, and one in particular in the last five years, it was saying that less than um, 10% of the world's protected areas, and there's lots of designations for protected areas, but uh, they were kind of encompassing all the kind of protected areas or, or areas of, of conservation interest are actually connected to any other single protected area. So this goes back to con- yeah. the connectivity you, you talked about. And I, I think it'll be a very sad day, and we've, we've, we're, we're so far along this track already that in some cases this exists, where our idea of the wild are these gazetted paradises. And Africa is a good example of where that's the case. Like South Africa's, and I, you know, and I love the continent of Africa, and I spent a lot of time there. I have family in South Africa, and there's and a lot of friends there, and it's, it's a cool place to visit. But it is quite sad for the most part how that's exactly what has happened there in particular, if I was to pick one country in in Africa as an example, where they have, and it's not even working there because, you know, you've got Kruger, you've got Addo um, Elephant Park. Mm, And these are huge areas. Don't get me wrong, they're massive. But as soon as you hop over that fence, it's a different landscape. 
And yes, right. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit because there's also a heap of very successful private reserves at the west coast of, um, of Kruger National Park, but they're not even working very well. Like, I was telling my dad the other day that um, a, f- a good friend of mine, Alex Oliveso, who's been on this podcast before, um, he just finished a rhino, um, a rhino capture workshop, and he does a lot of game capture, and he was working with vets from all over Southern Africa, um, vets and people involved in game capture. And they were saying that the best guess, and these numbers are not official, but um, I think the official numbers out of Kruger are frankly a lie and have been for a long time because they're trying to hide their failures, is that there's maybe 700 rhinos left. Wow. There was 6,000 only 10 years ago. 10 years ago? Yeah. Um, And it's... And that's going off topic slightly, but... But that is disheartening in itself. Jeez, that almost makes me want to have a drink right now. That's I know. Well, it's almost it's uh, seven p.m. here, so I can I can almost have a drink once we finish this podcast. (laughs) But I just I raise that as an example of Kruger National Park is seen as this you know perfect paradise by by a lot of the world, and it is fraught with the most incredible long list of problems. It would blow your mind. We covered some of that um, with the elephant issues in volume eight um, about the elephant populations, and not not this. It's not the same, but it it raises some of the same questions. Elephant populations there have been very successful. They've actually they've managed to kind of stay on top of the poaching issue, the historic poaching issue of elephants in that area, and then crossing the the border into the southern part of Mozambique. Uh, but there's quite simply too many elephants there. Um, mm-hmm. Some people will disagree with that statement, but most sensible people that uh, I know would agree with that that there's just too many. And the problem is that that landscape is not connected anymore. That there are people everywhere. That towns are breaking up. Towns and borders, and farmland break up the historic migratory routes. And as soon as elephants want to get, or want to get, as soon as elephants get to the point where they they are too dense in an area and they they need to move out of an area, they're moving out into areas where they're coming into conflict with humans. Mm-hmm. And the same is true with, you know, pick your species. We're talking about grizzlies. The same is true with grizzlies. So it's quite sad that the success of the recovery of a species to some extent is what is causing the current problem because it's been successful. But because we're creating these landscapes of these these island paradises, and really, I think successful conservation in the future is not the creation of more isolated, protected areas. It is going back to what we were talking about right at the beginning of this conversation. It's integrating people and wildlife back in the same landscapes with greater tolerance and understanding that we need landscapes that have both. Because if we think that the way that we're going to save wildlife is to put fences around areas and just protect them, we're sorely mistaken. It is definitely a tool. And don't get me wrong there. It absolutely has a place and it has worked. But that is that is not that's not a long-term game. That is, to exactly your point, you're turning them into zoo animals, essentially. It might be in big areas, but that's kind of what they are. And do we really want to live in a world where for a species to continue to perpetuate, we have to go and dart them, capture them, and take them to other parks? That's That's not conservation. 
That, yeah. Well, it, it is conservation, but it's it is not successful long term conservation. That's that's a failure of humans, is what that is. And I think that's that's the exciting part, right? I, I think to be, you know, seriously engaged in conservation means that you are, you know, one way or another, a reluctant optimist because you're getting into some <laughs> yeah. work that can be pretty depressing. But when you spend some time there, you see that there are opportunities. And I think one of the exciting things is, you know, here we are in the 21st century, we've got more people than ever before. And we've, we've said as a species, you know, we care about these places. You, you talk to most people, oh, I love nature. I love the outdoors. Well, you know, now we get to have the opportunity of seeing what that looks like when we put our money and our actions where our mouth is. And so I think, you know, in the past, we've had this model of conservation, which is sort of this fortress conservation model where we've, yeah, exactly. we've got parks, we've got, you know, w- you know, wilderness areas, and those are really important and they serve a really valuable, you know, purpose for people and wildlife alike. In Montana, we've got some of the most beautiful wilderness areas, you know, I'm sure I'm biased on the planet, but I think, you know, when you're really talking about how are we figuring out how to, to you know, deal with these bear issues. Well, really, we're talking about how are we dealing with human issues on, on the planet? Because yep. people think about conservation and, and maybe some people go to this place where they have to try to like go back and make things really natural and, you know, find sort of like historically what was the trajectory of this landscape and how do we get that back to where it was? And maybe in some places that's true, but I think by and large, we just have to do a better job of interfacing with some of those animals. And it's just I think it's a little bit more provocative because grizzlies, you know, can be dangerous animals and to have them coming through communities is not the same as having a coyote come, you know, come through a community. So, you know, then what is our role going to be as we're building communities, as we're reshaping communities, as, you know, we expand communities, how are we facilitating passage for some of these, you know, really important species to come through? Because if you're doing a good job, of of helping grizzlies out you are almost certainly doing a good job of helping other species that are kind of under them you know as grizzlies are really kind of an important umbrella species for so much of the ecosystem so trying to figure out what does that look like i mean i've talked with with a bunch of ranchers in in areas along the blackfoot and you know they have bears coming through their their area and and coming through herds and they're trying really hard to figure out ways to address that um non-lethally you see things going up like electric fences which help to kind of move bears maybe through riparian areas instead of going through you know pasture land you see flattery going up which again is just like these little red waving flags just kind of for yep. animals like wolves and 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 sometimes grizzlies for a while you know um, d- different strategies that that people are working on to make passage a little bit easier, and I think we just have to get that to to happen in a bigger way. I think conservation moving forward into the twenty first century is going to take more buy in from people, and not just say animals are over there, humans are right here, but thinking about how we can really address passage issues um, and habitat issues more meaningfully. And I think one of the big takeaways for me from the story that you wrote is that so much of that comes down to education because a lot of the people who are now living in these relatively rural areas or or at least areas which back on to places which 
now have bears back in them or now have wolves back in them are not used to living in that landscape with these animals. And so uh, understanding how to interface and how to behave is quite alien to them. And so education is a massive component to avoid the conflict in the first place. Right. And, you know, that comes, I think, in a lot of forms, too. It could come in the form of something as simple as, you know, there's so many recreationists that come through Montana and they're excited to be here. And that's great. Or, you know, again, what we've seen with the pandemic is there's a lot of folks that have moved here who probably like the idea of Montana and living in these wild places. I think they've watched that Yellowstone show maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> but uh, again, I'm not taking a swipe at Costner. I don't need to I don't need to start some sort of beef with Kevin Costner. I think he'd squash me. But um, <laughs> he's also too cool. He's just too cool. Yeah, he's just yeah. too. Come on. <laughs> you know, I can't get, I can't get into that. My life doesn't do that right now. But um but being there and just being humble is something that we have a hard time with because, again, we have gotten to a place where we are rewarded for having opinions quickly. The faster we can say something, tweet something, the more incendiary that can be, you know, we're, we're paid with likes and follows and that makes us feel good. But to walk into some place and just try to be quiet and to try to be humble, um, is really important. And even when we say something like education, a lot of the time it's easy for, for us to say, yeah, we just need to improve education as if it's something that needs to be given to someone and not necessarily something that needs to be received because <laughs> there is yeah. so much education that's out there. My gosh, you know, I mean, you've got the, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes that are right here who have been here, you know, for time immemorial. And You've got all these people who've been on this land for such a long time who are trying to tell you what's going on with grizzly issues. And it's quick to say, well, you're a rancher. What, you know, you're, you're part of the problem. It's like, well, hold on here, buddy, because some of these ranchers, you know, think what you will about livestock, that area that they have, as long as they have it and as long as they don't sell it, that means it's not going to turn into a new development with 30 homes. Which is happening rapidly in Montana, sadly. Exactly. Nail on the head there. Because, you know, that rancher might be, you know, amenable to, you know, some grizzlies or some wolves passing through their land. But as soon as you have, you know, 30 homes, children, pets, again, orchard trees, bird feeders, trash, when those bears, those predators come into that area, they're toast. You you know, those, those wildlife managers are virtually obligated to have to put that animal down. Or destroy yep. that animal. So um, education, it, it's got to go both ways. And I think it's so important to first be, to have the mindset to think that you are not giving anyone an education. The first thing you need to do is to receive that education. And after you've sat with that a long, a long enough time, you know, you can, you can start to share, um, you know, what you know, but not in a way that's sort of, um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for here. Patriarchal maybe, but, mm. but just want to be a good receptive participant in the landscape is critical right now. I think one of the interesting things about the endangered species act, which kind of fronts a lot of the controversy when you hear conversationally grizzly bears brought up, it, it's this, well, the, the delisting of them is what riles a lot of people on both sides of the fence is that 
the way that I viewed it, and I, I think the way that it was set up originally, if I, unless I'm misunderstood um, through many conversations, is that the ultimate example of success by putting something on the Endangered Species Act is getting it off again. Because if it passes all of those criteria to no longer warrant being on the Endangered Species Act, that's a, a massive milestone and success of the recovery of a species. And so I, I understand the the desire to uh, and the the, the emotional um, response that many people have to the notion that it would be taken off. But I think it's it's misunderstood exactly what what that means, and that it really should, in some ways, be a celebration that all of the criteria that you know one day when it does happen, uh, you know, and, and happens on a on a broader scale. That this is actually a massive win. Absolutely. I know that there's uh, there are a, a, a whole heap of implications off the back of it, yeah. for sure, and we can talk about that. But that's like you know, cre- open the bottle of whiskey. We got the species off the endangered species <laughs> yeah. act. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And you know, it, the the endangered species act, you know, tries to be pretty thorough. They've got a five factor analysis that that either gets a species on a list or in reverse gets it off of a list. And, you know, they're trying really hard to do that. But if every animal goes on there and stays on there, um, yeah, like what, what, what's the point of having an Endangered Species Act in the first place? We want to be able to celebrate the fact that we can bring an animal back from the brink um, and, and see it living wild and, and free. I think, like you rightly say, so much of the pushback comes not from the fact that, you know, we are or are not able to get uh, a species like, you know, grizzly bears off of the endangered species list. But what do we do with them after that time? Yeah. And, you know, again, I just go back into the whole um, conversation about what does it mean to be responsible to a landscape? And if your solution is, all right, there's enough bears now, they're getting into communities, we should start just hunting more of them, but you're not changing anything about the way you're existing in that community, the way that you are educating other people or being educated by other people. Um, You're not addressing, again, any of the inherent socioeconomic issues that complicate grizzly bear recovery uh, that have nothing to do with bears, but everything to do with people and the way that we treat each other. Um, You know, it's just, it seems like a half-cocked approach and it seems like one that's going to be destined for failure because you know, an animal can come off the endangered species list, but it can go right back on there if if it's not a really good sound um, recovery. And if there's not the right mechanisms in place to monitor that recovery afterwards, which is one of the reasons that grizzly bear, bear delisting has failed in the past is because there's yeah. just really good ways to monitor how well the species was doing at, after that time. And so they, you know, they're right back on it. it it's such a complex topic. And uh, bears is a species that I don't know and that much about uh, i'm kind of i'm in awe of people who have uh had lots of experience with them and, and that's one of the reasons i i love including your story in this volume is because i got to learn so much about it at the same time and having that that singular encounter with a grizzly um last year or whenever it was uh definitely um fueled my enthusiasm to spare spend more time around bears and understand them more but i i would say that of, of the the small handful of people that I know who have or or do hunt bears 
whatever species of bear that might be, none of them are of the opinion that they are wanting to hunt the last bear. Either they To go back to something we were talking about at the start, is a lot of people want the same thing, but often go want to go about it in a slightly different way. And you might not necessarily agree with you know, how somebody lives their life or the things that they do, but they all want more bears in the landscape. And they all want healthier ecosystems. And that's not to say that they're, you know, everybody is of that opinion, but certainly the small handful of people that, so I, I in the same way as brushing all, all ranches as, as evil people that just want to go and, uh, you know, kill a wolf that comes over their fence line or a bear because it might might conflict with the livestock that they have. The same is true of people who hunt, um, who might have and, and do hunt bears where where it is possible and legal. They're not the bad guys or gals. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's such a challenge, you know, because I for as much time as I've spent with, you know, conservationists, with wildlife biologists, with management specialists, with, you know, all these people who are so deeply engaged in, in bear conservation and, and being a hunter myself, right. I still haven't fully formed an opinion on what grizzly hunting should look like. If that even comes to light as a possibility. And yeah, neither, neither have I. Right now, you know, you've got um, state politicians who are who are preemptively getting ready a tri-state hunt agreement with Idaho and Wyoming so that should grizzly bears be delisted from the Endangered Species Act, uh, that opens the door for sort of a tri-state hunt that would be happening at, the, at that point. Um, you, you know, and again, I just I don't I don't know if you know, we should be just sitting there licking our chops and saying, come on, come on, come on, delist those things so that I can shoot one. I think that's probably a bad approach to, in my opinion, you know, a bad approach to, to ethical hunting. Um, it's, it's just a challenge because, you know, if you have bears that are coming close to people who are, who get habituated to being very close to people, that is so dangerous. Right. I mean, that's an individual. That's a that's an that that is a problem of an individual animal, not the species and and a problem with an individual animal because of a problem with with people. Right. And, you know, for people who've seen documentaries like Grizzly Man, you've got, you know, Timothy Treadwell, who was, you know, so focused on, on having bears just kind of almost depicted as. I think I think the mistake that he made was sort of over. Um, over personification of those animals and yeah. or anthropomorph- anthropomorphism, excuse me. I think that his, his issue was sort of over anthropomorphizing bears. Um, and we don't need bears to be human, right? We just need bears to be bears. And there's something that's so beautiful into being able to respect another life form for that in itself. And I think that's what makes, you know, these landscapes so beautiful and so exciting is because there are things that are not us and don't need to be like us. We just need to allow them to have space so that we can appreciate them and appreciate the places that they they also call home. Um, you know, and I, I guess I'm not exactly sure where I was going with that, but you know, thinking about about hunting, 
if you have animals that get that close, I don't think it's good to say, you know what? We're totally fine with bears. Yes, the bears got into our chicken coop. Yes, the bears, you know, got into our garbage. We'll just call that a tax. You know, we live in we live in Montana. That happens sometimes. If if you're allowing that sort of um that sort of activity in bears, you are training that bear to cause real trouble to to other humans. Um and so, you know, what do you do with that? You know, can you just say that bear shouldn't be shouldn't be put down? And maybe that's the job of wildlife management specialists and not so much as recreational hunters. Um, but it's tough. And I tell you what, that's why I still really appreciate that I have the opportunity to do this work, because I certainly don't have all the answers, but I just am thrilled to be able to go out and spend time with people who are really actively searching for them. You know, yeah. I and, I love that. And, and it's. It's a very honest and beautiful thing to sit there and say, you know what, I haven't fully formed an opinion on this. I I can't give you the answer, and that is totally okay. Mm-hmm. And I haven't formed uh, an opinion, a particularly strong opinion on what does that look like if they're delisted, and what does hunting for them look like, and is that a good thing in a landscape, mm-hmm. and what what shape and form would it take? There are not that many people who are willing to do that. I think that we we live in a world increasingly where you are kind of forced to take an opinion and to not to to say I can't give you one because I don't feel like I have enough information is a very rare thing and I wish more people would do it rather than making statements um and opinions of fact not necessarily based on fact mm-hmm. but people make statements like they are and i it, it's so it's very refreshing to hear that and i'm i'm very quick to turn around and say to somebody i i'm just not sure i i don't i'm not there yet this is what i know but i i i can't stand there and give you a a form a firm opinion about how something should be unless i i really genuinely and honestly feel like i have enough pieces that I can form that for you. And isn't that, you know, isn't that wonderful in itself? Because, you know, what do you do with that? Really, it's an invitation to go full circle on what we've been talking about this whole time, Byron, which is to spend time in those communities and to to move in such a way and conduct yourself in such a way that is respectful and tactful and as complete as possible when you're looking at all of the information, all of the cultural nuances, um, you know, all the political nuances, whether it's local or larger, that go into making one of those decisions. Because eventually, you know, with something like hunting, it, it is, as I see it, at least right now, it's binary. Eventually, you're either going to be for it or you're going to be against it. But again, I think that by just sitting here and thinking about it, uh, you're not really doing due diligence there. You have to go out into these places. You have to interact with these people. You have to spend time understanding what life is like for the other. And when you can do that, you are stitching yourself into a much larger fabric of a community. And I think that's where you have the potential to make meaningful, nuanced change. And I think that's what we're all looking for with something as complicated as Grizzlies. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. And I think that is a a very succinct way to wrap up this conversation. (laughs) Rob, thank you so much for contributing to this volume. 
Uh, it was great to work on you with it. Like I had a, I had a really good time. Not that I had to do very much with your, with your story, but um, I had a very good, t- a really good time just talking through it with you and making sure that I understood as as I'm not wasn't the only editor on on the story, but as one of the editors and how we could best put that together to do justice to the story and portray it uh, visually the way that it deserved to be. Well, I, I really appreciate that, and you know, again, it's a. It's a complicated issue, and certainly, you know, you all over at Modern Huntsman uh, recognize that and appreciate that. And I just give you a lot of kudos for being to kind of, you know, being able to wade into that territory with me because it's a lot, and it's going to be a lot. Well, I'm looking forward to doing it again and carrying this on because, like you said right at the start, this is not over. This is this is right. just the first step on a very long journey. And uh, I just encourage everybody to go and get yourself a copy of Volume Nine. And uh, if there's going to be a story that you read first, um, open it to the the very. Um, our designer did an amazing job with the the, um, the the graphic design of the infographic that precedes your story, and then go on to read the hand that feeds. Amazing. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. And when you make it to Montana, Byron, you need to find me because I definitely owe you. Oh, I'm going to shoot you a WhatsApp. Don't worry. As soon as I know what date I'm going to be there from, I'll, I'm going to shoot you a WhatsApp. See if we can cross over. Fantastic. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And then we'll we'll talk soon. Thanks, Rob. Cool. Yep. Take care.